And that's not to say that there aren't causes and conditions that affect us and that we all don't want to focus on trying to, you know, uh, level the playing field for all human beings as much as we possibly can. But we're still all making choices all the time. And so the, these ideas are, are um, you know, been around for a long time. But um, the important distinction is between ownership and blame. Because radical responsibility is obviously not about blaming others, but it's also not even one iota about blaming ourselves. That's not helpful at all. It's not about blaming ourselves. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Mental Purpose Podcast. Our mission is to elevate, educate, empower, enrich, and evolve men to be on purpose, right? To live the best life possible, the most authentic life possible with no regrets. But it's not just for men. It's just me as a man on purpose interviewing men on purpose, right, who are on purpose, and I'm interviewing them on purpose, asking questions about how they changed who they were, grow or evolved who they were to become this person and have and do what they do. It has to start that way. It has to be being before doing, always, 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 always. So you're wondering, what are we going to talk about today with this super exciting guest? I'll tell you. We're going to be talking about how to move beyond blame how to fearlessly live your highest purpose, and how to become an unstoppable force for good. Sound good? Cool. This guest is Dr. Fleet Mall. And before I tell you about him, because he is impressive, really impressive, and this episode is like, wow, mind-blowing. So before I tell you about Dr. Fleet Mall, let me just fill you in on a couple really cool things we got going on. Remember, our Facebook community the men on purpose community again not to be confused with the men on purpose podcast community which is totally different the men on purpose community is a phenomenal resource i call it an ecosystem it's an ecosystem for all of us people who are on purpose to find other people who are on purpose um to collaborate with to network with to talk about the things we're experiencing to talk about our challenges and the way that we're solving them to talk about who we're becoming our missions in life, our purpose in life, our visions we have for ourselves, our families, the world, our money, our relationships, you name it. That's the ecosystem that we're creating. Just like we created a cool ecosystem with this podcast, we're taking that same concept and we're putting it over into the Men on Purpose community on Facebook. You'll love it. It's free to join. There's tons of giveaways. There's coaching in there. There's videos. Obviously, it's new, so I'm building it, but like by the time you listen to this, there will be some really amazing resources in there and a lot of great people who don't want the normal old mastermindy seminary kind of, you know, just just exist in it and pretend like something's actually happening. There's real stuff happening in this community. There's real stuff happening on this podcast because we're on freaking purpose about it. Right. OK, let me tell you about the guest. <laughs> Dr. Mall. Um, He's an author, he's a, a world-renowned growth mindset and meditation teacher who delivers his training programs and seminars around the world in, both in person and online through his company, which is called the HeartMed Institute, or sorry, the HeartMind Institute. He's an executive coach, he's an inspirational leader and speaker, and he's a social entrepreneur who works at the intersection of personal and social, uh, social transformation. Um, he founded the Prison Mindfulness Institute and National Prison Hospice Association, catalyzing two national movements while serving a 14-year mandatory minimum federal drug sentence from 1985 to 1999. So he developed, Dr. Fleet developed, the Radical Responsibility Empowerment Model that embraces 100% ownership for each and every circumstance we face, free of blaming oneself or others. There's like 15 more paragraphs I can read. Don't, don't let his interview minimize the intense work and the depth and the reach, global reach that this guy is doing for this planet, for people that are suffering, for people that are being victimized, for people that are incarcerated, that can't speak for themselves or just don't have that internal mechanism. This dude's doing a serious force for good. And as you know, on this podcast, we keep leveling up the guests. Every guest, we're leveling up. We're keeping leveling up because we've got to deliver you the best possible information right? So that we can educate you, elevate you, empower you, enrich, and, and evolve your life through this content. If you choose to or not, it's your call. But we appreciate you listening. If you need more information on what we're doing in our coaching business, our mission for this planet, or anything else we're doing in our purpose in our lives um, to help yours, 
hit the website up, ianloboss.com, and hit up mentalpurposepodcast.com if you want to learn more about our guests, any guests, the podcast, or what we're doing on that mission. All right? This is Dr. Fleet Mall. Enjoy yourselves. All right, Dr. Mall, let's do this thing. We're going to talk about some very interesting subjects today. And uh, before we do that, though, I want to get into your background because you have a very interesting past. And it, I'm guessing, and we're going to learn different maybe, potentially, or we'll learn more, that your past created this person in this movement that you've, that you've built. And I think that's really fascinating. So let's talk about that. What, tell me about your past. I mean, the stuff you got into and where you ended up. Yeah. Thank you, Ian. Um, sure. It's uh, yeah, I have a kind of a classic checkered past. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I was one of those uh, individuals that came up through the sixties, a baby boomer coming up to coming of age in the sixties and early seventies with kind of a dual major on the one hand, I was always a spiritual seeker. I'm not sure why, but from very early on and very interested in the mind and, and spiritual things. And at the same time, I went headlong into the counterculture and, and the drugs, sex, and rock and roll, all the craziness of that era. Uh, you know, I think I, I, you know, really came of age with kind of a typical angry young man with a big hole in my gut that I was trying to fill up with anything and everything I could. And, uh, you know, just early childhood stuff, whatever. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a good family, but we had, there was alcoholism in my family and, you know, that creates various splits and everything. But anyway, suffice it to say that I was really went headlong into that counterculture of that time. And um, so I had these kind of twisted parallel paths going on. And before I could untangle it, I earned my way into a federal prison sentence. Um, wow. And uh, I was indicted um, for smuggling cocaine from South America, which is something I'm not proud of at all, obviously. Sure. Uh, I have a lot of regrets about my involvement and all that. Uh, but I do feel good about what I did with my time once once I did end up in prison. I was, uh, you know, I'd actually, prior to, to getting indicted and going to prison, I'd uh, been trained, really uh, been training deeply in a, in a Buddhist path of meditation. And as a meditation teacher, I'd gotten a master's degree in what was then called a master's degree in Buddhist and Western psychology. The same program is now called a master's degree in contemplative psychotherapy. And it was a three-year, very intensive clinical training program, um, uh, integrating the best of, of both Western and, and Buddhist psychology. And so the, I landed in prison with a lot of skills, a lot of background, and um, didn't make it any less uh, shocking or, or difficult, sure. but it did allow me to have that be an incredibly transformational time for myself rather than it being something that actually would, I mean, the vast majority of people that spend significant time in prison come out worse than they went in. And uh, yeah. it's a very debilitating, dehumanizing, destructive environment, really. But because of the resources I went in with, I was able to use, I was able to use the time well. And uh, actually, when, when, I, when I got sentenced, I, w I was uh, indicted on this so-called kingpin statute. And I really to this day don't feel I was anything anywhere near a kingpin. Um, and I certainly, I, I was broke at the time. I, I haven't met too many broke kingpins, but um, <laughs> right. uh, at any rate, I refused to testify. And that's why I became the person, you know, um, and lots of other people were willing to testify. And it's kind of the way it works. And I wasn't, it wasn't that I was trying to be a stand-up guy or anything. I, it was that uh, it just didn't align with my Buddhist values that I was going to, somebody else was going to go suffer in prison and their families and children were going to suffer so that I wouldn't have to go to prison or could do a lot less time in prison. That just didn't line up with my sure. values. So, uh, so at any rate, uh, I was really originally sentenced to a 30 year no parole sentence and I was 35 years wow. old. Uh, in the paper the next day, it said I would be 65 before I'd have any chance of release. So I pretty much thought my life as I'd known it was over. And yeah. Uh, I was absolutely devastated because of what I then realized I'd done to my son, who was nine years old at the time, was now going to grow up without a dad. And um, as it turned out, once I actually got to the federal prison, uh, you know, I was in a hellhole of a county jail for seven months going through trial and sentencing, which was just an absolute hellish experience. And But once I got to the federal prison, 
which was kind of a relief because it was actually a big place and you could get a job and there was recreational facilities and a yard. You could get outdoors and so forth. Um, but also after being there a while, I realized actually it took me a while to figure out uh, the legalities of my sentence that um, if I managed to stay out of trouble, there was a lot of good time, what they call good time available. And, and prior to 1987, uh, there was uh, significant what they call statutory good time and then also good time that you get by just staying out of trouble and keeping a job in prison. So it turned out that uh, on 30 years, if I managed to stay out of trouble and kept a job, I would uh, have to serve about uh, 18 and a half years. Now, it still, of course, felt like wow. forever, right? That's a long and, time. Uh, and then my... Um, uh, I appealed, of course, my sentence, and and uh, because I didn't, I really didn't feel I was guilty of the charge that carried the no parole penalty, the the so-called kingpin statute. Uh, I would have pled guilty to all the rest of it if if uh, if they hadn't charged me with that. And so, at any rate, on my appeal, they did they did knock off that count, but they knocked off one other, so that reduced my aggregate sentence down to 25. And then at that point, I knew I'd serve 14 and a half. So that was about. My, I don't know, my appeal took two and a half years or so to go through the courts. So by that time that I knew that, I still had like 12 and a half years to go, and that still felt like forever, obviously. Long, and of course, time. there was no guarantee that I would survive that time. I was seeing people die all around me, um, somewhat from violence, but, but also because I was doing my time at the maximum security federal prison hospital and in the heights of the AIDS epidemic, and people were dying all around me from AIDS and cancer and liver disease and uh, I saw people, even in the general population there, get sick and end up in the hospital and dying there. Um, I was in what they called the general population or work cadre there just to help run the place. And I, uh, because I had an education, uh, I got a job in the school teaching school. So my day job for 14 years was helping other prisoners learn to read or earn their GED or study for college classes or, or learn English. And that was my regular day job for 14 years. So, but uh, when I arrived there, as you can imagine, I was pretty caught up in my own drama, right? Thinking I'm, sure, I'm going to sure. be in prison forever. I've just kind of, I've really just torched my own life completely. I felt uh, like I really let my family down, let my spiritual teacher down, let my community down. I was devastated over what I'd done to my son and recognized all the incredible selfish decisions I've been making for so long, putting my son's life at risk and his mom's life at risk. And uh, so I was really caught up in that drama. And then I get to this federal prison hospital, which was when I first got there, I remember it felt like I was in a Fellini movie because, you know, just such suffering all around me. And, you know, yeah. this is a maximum security prison and, and seeing prisoners being helped down the hall who are blind or uh, uh, being wheeled around in wheelchairs who were paraplegics or even quadriplegics, seeing men doing the... Uh, the Thorazine or the Halidol two-step down the hall, you know, from the psych psychiatric ward and over-medicated with psych psycho psychoactive drugs and so forth. I mean, it was just really a hell realm. And there was so much suffering that it completely woke me up from the drama bound situation. And because of the training I'd had, um, you know, it really just, I shifted my focus. Okay, here I am. How can I serve here? This is going to be my community for some yeah. long period of time. So how can I best serve here? And that and that started a path of deep transformation. It sounds a lot easier. It sounds a lot easier as you say it than it was. And I'm I'm just really curious. When you, I, I had another. I have a friend of mine who went to prison for two and a half years um, for something, and he was on this podcast, and we were talking about it just in private. The mindset shift and the realization that this is now your life and the more you try and fight it the tighter the constraints are going to get the tighter the straitjacket gets not not really not literally but figuratively how do you take that you know let's say take the drug kingpin out you were doing some stuff you were making some money you had some freedom you had some things in your life but then you go from that to broke to jail how do you stage your mind through that uh, being in captivity at that point? And your, your freedoms are gone and you're facing 30 years and you have all these things, not only the, your life, but your child's life who's not affected, your 
relationship with your wife is now affected. And now, now you're seeing not only that, like if you were sitting in the woods alone and you just were sentenced there, it'd be different. But now you're seeing this pain and this like just just disgustingness of this of the correctional system and the treatment of people. And how do you process that? Yeah, well, it is really challenging. You know, when I was in the county jail going through trial and sentencing, my mind was just pretty crazy. And I, I was, you know, just constant nightmares. I couldn't sleep because in this jail, it was I was in this sort of concrete and steel tank, uh, five two-man cells, so 10 men in this little tank, and just a slit in the door that they passed the meal trays through. And uh, and they let prisoners there have radios and TVs if their family brought and gave them to them. And and then the, the tank across the out the door across the hall was state prisoners. And they were always beating each other up and screaming and yelling. And and the TVs and radios are blasting all the time. And it was a crew that stayed up all night watching movies and telling war stories. There was another crew that got up in the morning and watched uh, cartoons and another crew that watched the soap operas all afternoon. I mean, it was just crazy. And my mind was just full of fanatic panic and fear like you're you feel like you're you know the literally the the rat caught in the trap and you're you're just mm -hmm. desperate to is there any way out and you're kind of racing back what could i've done or what could i do or you know and and you know you're almost ready to chew off your own leg right to get out of the trap you know so my mind was crazy like that and i remember yeah. when i'd be taken to court um uh the u.s marshals would they put me in a county jail way down and uh, my trial was in st louis missouri they put me in a county jail like three and a half hour drive south, which meant my lawyer was going to see me like once, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, but when I did go to court, the U.S. Marshals would drive me back and forth. And I remember sitting in the backseat of this car with the two marshals in the front seat and my mind just racing with escape fantasies. Right. And, you know, thank God I didn't do some of the things I imagined or fantasized doing. or I'd probably sure. still be in prison. Right. So um, but your my mind was nuts like that. But fortunately, I had a, a meditation practice. I knew how to work with my mind. I've been trained for the last 10 years in working with my mind. And my, you know, the, the meditation training was, was very much about working with my own mind. Uh, my master's degree was about uh, supporting people who are experiencing extreme states. So I had a lot of training. And um, so I was able to just hang in there with it. And I knew that, you know, I really had to practice. And I would sit, uh, on the upper bunk, I, I kept an upper bunk, even though with seniority, you could get to a lower bunk. I stayed in the upper bunk because there was room to sit up there and I could practice at night. And I'd be sitting up there practicing meditation. And at one point, I remember having the experience that, you know, it was just bedlam, noise, chaos everywhere. And, and I just suddenly realized there I was sitting, my mind was completely calm and still, and it wasn't being pulled by any of that. And it, it was aware of it, but it wasn't being pulled or disturbed by any of it. And I had lots of experiences like that before in various meditation retreats and so forth, but never in that kind of extreme circumstance. Sure. And when I had that and was able to just kind of rest in that, I, I, I got this wave of kind of confidence that came over that didn't get rid of the fear, but it did. I did realize I can do this. I can do this. And that was very helpful. And, uh, you know, so as I arrived at the federal prison, I, I decided to make practice, my meditation practice, the core of what I was going to do there. And if I was going to be able to help anybody, I realized it was going to come out of my practice, not out of some strategy or something. And so I just really focused on practicing hours a day, working with my own mind. And of course, then that environment becomes this really rich landscape for practice. I mean, it's incredibly challenging. It's like, you know, it's one thing to go off and learn to meditate and develop calmness in a, in a quiet Zen monastery somewhere in ideal yeah. surroundings. But it's another thing to do it in the middle of a crazy prison. Do you think that, as you were saying, that I was thinking about your mission and how big it is and the things that you do for, for the world. And I think about my own mission, too. Do you think that you have to have that level of, of um, duality in your life to be able to get to the level and reach the heights that you have in your, your current life? Do you think that's, I mean, it's not like a given, it's not a constant. It's just, I'm just wondering, would you be, and obviously you don't know the answer to this, this is speculative, but do you think you'd be the person that you are today without that type of experience? And do you think you'd be able to, um, 
to understand surrender and, and mindfulness and presence and, and those sort of things without that like extremely polarizing experience you went through? Well, I definitely wouldn't be the person I am today without having gone through sure. that experience. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know where I would have ended up, but I mean, I, you know, even if I hadn't gone to jail, I was, I was really committed to that meditation path and I probably sure. would have done all right. But I certainly wouldn't be the same person I am today. It'd be something, I don't know. Maybe there would have been other challenges that would have, I would have stepped into. I've always been kind of, uh, you know, that's part of what got me in trouble was I was uh, really looking for something that was real and I was willing to take risks and really step into life, right? Because early on in childhood, everything kind of just went gray tones. And, and, you know, I remember being a very young child, everything was really real and vivid and kind of magical. And then it went gray tones and I, I never made peace with that. So I was I was looking for something real and that took me down a lot of twisted paths. And uh, eventually I was able to really find it through contemplative practice. But along the way, you know, uh, you know, but so I mean, I mean, I think something in my life would have always pulled me to edges, to those edges of learning. Sure. But certainly, uh, where I ended up and being in prison completely transformed my life and who I am today, and what I what I'm able to bring to the world, and and the consciousness I have about it, and and um, uh, it was very influenced. So you know, even when I when I got to that prison, that that decision to focus on how I could show up and serve in this crazy environment, um, there was a mixture of things there. One, the influence of the family I grew up in, a basically solid, good family. We had our problems with alcoholism and different things, and but still a lot of good values and community focused and so forth. And then my first spiritual teacher, the Tibetan master Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who, as far as I could see, just lived his life 24-7 in service of humanity, and he had no other interest in life other than helping people wake up and overcome suffering. And so I, I had those examples behind me, you know, kind of, and then I also saw when I got to that federal prison, you know, one of the one of the standard rituals when you meet another prisoner, you know, you might go for a walk in the yard and, you know, usually they tell you their victim story. Then you tell, tell them they're your victim. You know, my fall partner ratted on me and my lawyer screwed me over and, you know, da, 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 and, and that's just kind of the ritual. And after I went through that two or three times, I really I didn't want to hear my story anymore at all. I really didn't want to hear their stories either. That's not very compassionate. But, you know, it's just not where I wanted to be. And I realized I was in a world of tremendous anger and bitterness. And it's quite natural because when you get arrested, um, the system just starts. It's just set up that way. It starts kind of trying to bury you in a mountain of it's guilt easy. and shame and demonization. Yeah. And so naturally trying to survive just for your being to survive in that we armor up, right? You armor up with anger and bitterness sure. and your own your own victim narrative and so forth. And so I realized that's the world I was in. And also it was a very racially polarized world. And, uh, you know, it was just, and, and I knew there was a real danger that, uh, that I could end up becoming a really negative person. Uh, and I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't want to come out of prison that way, uh, broken, negative, bitter. Uh, and I didn't, um, I didn't want to live that way while I was there. So, um, so I realized I, I had to proactively do something different. So I think it was the influence of my background, my family and my spiritual teacher and community that helped me really make that shift into service and realizing sure. I'm here, there must be a reason. And then it was also out of realizing I needed to proactively embrace responsibility for having got myself into that situation and what I was going to do with it was really the birth of the radical responsibility philosophy that finally emerged as my book a couple of years ago, um, that I realized that really the only way through and out for me with this experience was to embrace, you know, 100% or 200% radical responsibility for having got myself into that place and, uh, and then what I was going to do with it. And I constantly decided to let go of the rest of it because, you know, I had all kinds of people I could have, you know, brought into blaming my situation for. I mean, sure. when... When you get when you know when you're involved in a federal drug case, they don't play by the rules. They play you know they play hardball. They they break all the rules and you know, and uh, you know and I had tons of people uh, decide to have me do their time instead of them doing time. Right, so I I could have been all I could have focused on all that and just been a victim and gotten bitter sure. and angry and all that, but I, it's not who I wanted to be. I just didn't want to be that, and so I really made this conscious choice to live differently. And everything I was able to do during those 14 years in the prison and the 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 programs I started, the national organizations and movements I was able to start from in there all came out of that sort of philosophical approach. So 
your your situation is just an extreme but really what you're talking about is 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 our basic philosophies for life anyway you know our society is much like that prison again more polarizing more extreme however most people and i had somebody on yesterday who was in the tail end of a, of of the of a world war living in eastern europe at that time and in poland which you know obviously we know what happened there and he, there are conscious decisions that he made. There are conscious decisions that you made. You definitely, the way that the world brings you up and uh, the way the world and our correctional system and our prosecution system, the way that that blames you and makes you, it creates your identity, kind of like the rest of the world creates your identity, through uh, no responsibility, through lack of accountability, through... Yeah, this happened, but that person did that. I mean, we saw that with the last election. I mean, it was just, it was, it was horrific to watch. If I ever caught it by accident, the, the people speaking on TV, it was, it was sickening and sad and, and it's just sad because nobody had accountability. But what you're talking about isn't, isn't necessarily because you were in jail. This is how you decided to show up as a human being, right? And it's, you, you, yeah, absolutely. You and, and, you know, I, I want to make an imp important distinction in the radical responsibility model. And, you know, there are other I mean, these ideas have been around for a long time. I mean, there's sure. been a resurgence in uh, the philosophy of the Stoics. Uh, there's a modern Stoic movement and uh, um, yeah. uh, there's a great online community and kind of podcast world called the Stoa. And, uh, uh, you know, this is this idea that, um, you know, living at choice and, and taking responsibility for the choices we're making and the impact that's going to have on others, the consequences it's going to create for ourselves. And that's not to say that there aren't causes and conditions that affect us and that we sure. all don't want to focus on trying to, you know, uh, level the playing field for all human beings as much as we possibly can. But we're still all making choices all the time. And so the, these ideas are, are um, you know, been around for a long time. But... Um, the important distinction is between ownership and blame because radical responsibility is obviously not about blaming others, but it's also not even one iota about blaming ourselves. That's not helpful at all. It's not about blaming ourselves. So often when I, when I teach this experientially, I'll, I'll have people go into pairs and surface some kind of conflict or drama when they really felt victimized and totally get into telling their victim story and just get into the energy of that. So they really get connected with that energy and and then I'll ask them to make the shift and tell the ownership version of that. And I and I ask them to really look back into what happened and see if there's any way they can see that they caused it or contributed to it. Any way they can see that they even unconsciously may have set themselves up for it, you know, playing out life scripts that develop in our childhood that we keep playing out until we don't. Or or is there some way that they just allowed it by, you know, not paying attention, by not doing their due diligence, not having a contract, not you know, being a lazy communicator or not having good boundaries, not speaking up for themselves or, and, and many different things like that. So there's that whole part where we look into to see if there's any any way I can own anything in a particular thing that I'm not feeling happy about. Right. And and so that's really important. But it's not for the purpose of blaming ourselves. It's just for the purpose of learning, because if I can see that here I am at point B, which I'm not happy about. And here are the steps that took me to get from point A to point B. And I understand something about how that unfolded. Well, I can do differently next time. I'm learning, right? I can, I can take a different approach. And then there are going to be some circumstances that we can get as radically honestly honest as we possibly can. And we just don't see that we had anything to do with it. Literally, it seemed like it just fell out of the sky, landed on our head. Everybody would agree we're completely innocent, victimized, you know. And so in this radical responsibility philosophy, I say we also own that. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, again, it's not about blaming ourselves, but it's just realizing, okay, you know, this landed on my head. I don't know why. I mean, you could get into things like past life karma, but, you know, even if that's true, and it is part of my Buddhist training, but still, it's like, it's not something we can really connect with or reach. You know, it doesn't really make any difference. That was another being in that last, you know, I don't remember who that person was. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, that's kind of irrelevant, but, uh, well, it can actually be relevant if you, Sure. have that philosophy because then you maybe don't feel so victimized by life because you realize you are playing out some things from past lives possibly. <laughs> but anyway, take all that off the table. 
it's it's not about blaming ourselves, but it's just saying, okay, here, this landed on me. Maybe this is something that shouldn't happen to anybody. It's horribly unjust, and it shouldn't happen to anybody. But here it is. It's in my lap. So at some point, the salient question is, what am I going to do with it? Am I going to let it take me down? Uh, and am I going to end up, you know, in a victim mindset the rest of my life? Or am I going to find what is the most creative way I can respond to this to move forward in my life? And that could include seeking justice. But seeking justice from that position of being at choice and owning my choices is very different than seeking justice from the victim mindset. And and so, you know, and also this model needs to be really girded in compassion because this is not about, you know, when something terrible befalls someone going to, well, you need to get off that, you know, you need to get, you know, no, that would be absolutely horrible. It's not, I don't feel it's for me uh, to decide what anybody else should do. And, and when people are really terribly victimized, uh, you know, they may need a lot of validation. They may really have a need to have that validated and they may, may need a lot of support and who knows what their journey of transformation will be. But I think we can all see if somebody stays really stuck in the mindset of victimization, at the very least, it's going to be very limiting for their own lives, very limiting. So we would hope that at some point they find some way to transform that experience and move forward in their life. And uh, and but speaking for ourselves, you know, I would hope that at some point I'm going to realize even in the worst possible situation, OK, what am I going to do with this? Here I am. Sure. What am I going to do yeah. with it? And And realizing that my future is going to be determined primarily by what I choose to do with it. Why is that so hard for people to understand? <laughs> you know, I talk, well, I talk to a lot of people, and I know that's a big question. I talk to a lot of people, and I'll say to them, imagine this. This is all on you. All of this is your fault. Somebody else did it. It's all your fault. Just imagine your thought process. Take your emotions and, and the blame and all that, and I want to go through that with you real quick. But you take that out. Why is that so hard for people to just say, you know what, I do see my fault in this. I do see the effect of my choices in this, whether you did or didn't do. I, see my, I can see my effect, and I can also see uh, how I could do things differently next time. Why is it so hard for people to just stop and not allow themselves to blame other people, take the responsibility and the accountability on and say, yeah, I messed that up, and I'm – you know what? I take that fully on. This is what I can do next time. It's clear. Let's move on. Why, why do people want to live in victimhood and blame and all the external stuff that really doesn't move them forward, but it makes them feel better? But there's not a, a sustainability in that. There's not a, a, a movement or a advancement in that. Why do they want to stay put? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons, Ian, and I'm not sure I have all of them nailed down. But um, one thing is that, and, you know, even words like accountability and responsibility, a lot of us associate them with blame, which is why I feel it's so important to tease it apart from blame. So we associate it from blame, and we've all experienced being blamed in our lives, and we've experienced the shame that often comes along with that, Right. And we've all, you know, growing up, none of us come out of childhood unscathed. And, you know, we have tender hearts, we're vulnerable, and we've been blamed and shamed. And, and so we don't want to have that experience anymore. And we've also been enculturated, generally in the culture, that somebody's always at fault. And so, you know, if something happens and I can't find somebody else to blame, then I'm going to have to blame myself. And I don't want to blame myself. And, I've, and I think I don't have any choice other than that. And, you know, I've experienced enough blame and shame in my life. Thank you very much. So I don't want to do that. So we almost we almost instinctually deflect blame. We just sure. instinctually do it. Right. And, and and myself, I have that same tendency in my own psychology. Right. Just to instinctually deflect the blame and want to blame someone else for for what, whatever it is. So I think that's part of it. The other part of it is that our culture, um, even though we have these ideas of personal responsibility running through on various levels within our culture and, and I'll talk more about that in a moment but i feel that we also what really dominates in our culture is a culture of shame and blame and it's just all pervasive everywhere and our, you know it's we have fear-based social institutions you know we don't believe in the innate goodness of human beings we we you know it's it's kind of that calvinist twist on christianity unfortunately i'm not demonizing christianity i i really I'm a Buddhist, but I'm a universalist, and I believe all the great religious traditions and philosophical traditions at their heart have beautiful, sure. essential wisdom teachings. 
But I think there was that twist that focused on the flawed nature of humanity and basically sees human beings as that were absent the threat of some coercive force uh, like punishment or shaming were dangerous. And so we've, we've created all, all our institutions are essentially, uh, you know, carrot and stick punishment, reward and shame based. And so it, it's so dominant in the culture that I think we're all sort of terrified of being blamed. And you see it again and again with the politicians and other people out in the public sphere. They'll just, they, you know, they believe that deny till you die, you know, deny till you die. And exactly. we've seen it again and again why the person ends up in more trouble and their career further destroyed because they wouldn't own it, right? But they're just convinced if I own it, I'm going to die. If I own it, they're going to kill me. Now, the problem is there's some truth to that, especially in today's world of cancel culture and social media, that if you own up to something, they are, you know, you are liable to be annihilated for it, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's a really difficult world to ask people into accountability. And the other thing is that we've really elevated victim stature to being a place of identity and power, right? Um, and really, I mean, in this upside down world we're in now in the kind of postmodernist influence landscape and especially the, the landscape of, of the kind of, so what sometimes people call woke politics movement that's capturing, you know, the media and everything else, you know, it's like, it's like everything's about having, uh, you know, one class or another of a victim identity that from which you can then wield power. And I don't mean to make light of the real suffering that's behind these things, but it's a, it's a kind of twisted ideology and it's not helping us transform uh, together as humanity, at least in my humble opinion. So there's a lot of reasons why we gravitate towards the victim mindset and why it feels too scary to uh, embrace accountability. Isn't there a, what 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 reminds me of is yeah, there has to be control, right? There has to be control in uh, uh, from a maybe a an overseer, overlord, government, whatever you want to call it. It's all the same standpoint that the people can't run loose. You have to have victims. They have to you have to have a victim mentality in some major part of the culture and of the society because if there if everybody if everybody took accountability for their own stuff, do they really need everybody else? Do you really need, you know, it's funny, my dad and I, last night we were watching the, uh, my dad's out here with me in LA for his birthday, and we are watching the Game Show Network, and we were flipping between that and the Weather Channel because we were watching some crazy storm show. Almost 90% of the commercials <laughs> were uh, medications, right, drug company commercials. Yeah. And the wackiest one I saw, and I'm not, I'm not um, minimizing anybody's ailments, mm -hmm. but I'm, st like, I'm still cracking over my head. My dad and I laughed our butts off. This lady, this lady came on and said, you know, are, are your eyes um, falling out of your head, basically? Mine are. And I have this problem, and I take this drug, and my eyes are going back into my head. And I thought, this has got to be, and am I in a twilight? Like, did I, did I have too much sake tonight? Like, am I in a twilight zone? Is that a real commercial? But it's almost it's almost like it's manufactured because you need to be a you need to be uh, you have to be reliant on somebody for something because if you can do it on your own, then there's nobody there's no insurance company that's making a tons of money no drug company that's making tons of money, you're doing your own thing, and it was just funny to see because I don't watch those type of shows I don't have cable I don't really watch TV, it was interesting to see how like the general population is marketed to, as a victim culture almost oh absolutely or that's not a, even all yeah that's the basis of consumerism you know we've been marketed to especially those of, who grew up in the modern media age uh the message all along is you're not enough you're not good enough but if you buy this you right. might be if you have this you might be if you have this you might be loved if you have this you might be yep. cool you yep. might be included or whatever and you know it's like that is the basis of the whole consumerist culture and you know there's a lot of complex forces at play here you know i mentioned uh uh, you know, woke politics. I don't want to just beat up on that alone. It's really this whole right-left culture wars thing because, you know, the Radical Responsibility book, my first book really focuses on uh, personal responsibility because I believe that's foundational to live at choice. The second book, which I'm working on now, is going to be about radical collective responsibility. And and for me, it's always been about both. Uh, and But you, in order to create collective responsibility, to take collective responsibility for 
for social justice, economic justice, racial justice, and to create as fair playing field and even of a playing field as we can for everybody and, and to have, you know, just uh, distribution of resources and so forth. And to do this in a way that really works requires personally responsible people to do that, in my view. I don't think personally unresponsible people can create collective responsibility. That's just my view. But at any rate, in our political landscape, you know, the right loves to talk about personal responsibilities, not that they are, but but they love to talk about it. And they hate to hear anything about collective responsibility or systemic causes and conditions because they feel that's a slippery slope away from demanding people take personal responsibility. And of course, the left hates the word personal responsibility. I had a person in a dialogue I was at at a meditation center when that term came up, go into tears, say, you don't know how damaging that term is. That's been used, as, you know, and it's like, because they feel that any mention of personal responsibility is a slippery slope away from acknowledging the very significant causes and conditions that impact people, right? And it's clearly a both-and issue, right? It's a yeah, both-and yeah. thing. But we stay back and forth in this war, you know, and, we, and now we have the extreme. We never had the extremes so much in the mainstream as before. We have the extreme left almost having captured the mainstream media in the form of woke politics, yeah. And we have things like QAnon being legitimized on the floor of Congress. I mean, you know, there's always been the wacko fringes of the political extremes. But, you know, over the last few years, they've ended up in the mainstream. And the people that are on the fringe now are the moderates, you know, the kind of center left, center right people that can have a rational conversation. They're like off in these podcast worlds, you know, they can't even participate yeah. in the mainstream because the mainstream is all about the war between these. It, it's gotten really crazy. And. And it's very it's very damaging in the long run. So, you know, there's we have to find our way behind beyond that, you know, and I think it really is this some kind of shared ethos that I am responsible for myself. I am living a choice and I am my brother's keeper and I am responsible to the collective and uh, and we have to do this together. Right. And and I believe that's in, that's entirely possible. And it's. It's sad to see how things get so pushed into uh, this polarization. And and really, everybody's got a victim story. The people on the right have a victim story. I mean, if you look at what drives, you know, the Trump supporters, it's all a huge victim story that he plays into. And if you look at what's driving the left, it's a big victim story that people do. And, and I, you know, that's just going to create perpetual warfare. Totally. I won't get into any politics. I agree with you on that for sure. And I, by, oh, I, by I, the way, I'm not diminishing the fact that no, people are victimized. No, oh no, you know, no, people no. are people I, are victimized. Things happen. I just, but I'm talking I'm, about the way out. Oh uh, yeah, hundred percent. And and I've had these conversations with my friends, and I'm I'm a middle guy. I, I see points on both sides. I see things that I don't like. I I'm not really a, a a politics lover. I don't really like politics that much. It's not just something just doesn't interest me. And um, but I, I want to get more. I want to understand things, obviously, so I can be a smart voter and, and, and be a good member of society in that term. Um, but what I don't get when I watch politicians from an ascended place that I have purposely gotten myself to by doing the work and owning the stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm choosing in my world and the consequences that come or the effects that come, I just simply cannot fathom how descended politicians most politicians look I'm, I'm sure there's some good politicians out there but the agenda and the damage and the trauma and the and the like when you watch these guys on tv is it i mean i i, I that's my choice if it makes me sick but it is kind of sickening watching a bunch of you know 50 60 70 year old men mainly act like eight-year-old boys on a playground that couldn't get on a, per, a piece of equipment or got their ball taken away from them. It's sickening because those are the people that make decisions for our society and our country. These people can't even, they can't even agree on what soda is better. You know, they have to argue. Would you say that that is just their trauma, just a deep-seated trauma from childhood and society and school and just the stuff that they've just never worked out and they're working it out through their you know, their power struggle or their ego and being a politician and being somebody important. I mean, what, what, what is that about? It's, it's so sad. Yeah, well, I think it's um, I think you're right. And what, what you're seeing when you're seeing the politicians and 
and yeah, yeah. I mean, we have for years seen a lot of older white guys doing, you know, yeah. uh, the landscape's changed a lot today and it is male and female and, and there's plenty sure. of evidence of, of craziness on both genders. And, oh, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, so, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I almost ascribe to the view that if we if we just had all women in there, we'd have a better world. Maybe that's true. I don't, I'm not sure it's true. And I'm not sure we're I seeing a lot of evidence of that yet. <laughs> Human beings are all susceptible to drama and, and, and all the rest of this. But I think what you said about trauma is right on. And it's not even necessarily the individual trauma, although that's part of it. But I think it's collective trauma. It's collective mm-hmm. trauma. My friend Thomas Hubel has done a lot of interesting work. He's He's German, lives now in Israel, but he's done a lot of work. You mentioned a friend that went, uh, somebody you interviewed that kind of went through the tail end of World War II. I go, I've been going to Poland every year for uh, about 20 years. Um, we do a bearing witness retreat at the uh, former uh, uh, death camp uh, at Auschwitz and Birkenau. And we've been doing that every November for, I think, the Zen peacemakers that I'm part of have been doing it for 24 years. It started while I was in wow. prison. I think the first one was in 1996. And I went, I was able to go the year after I got out of prison. I've been going ever since. And um, so a lot of people here in the U.S. don't have the sense of how much collective trauma there is in Europe from the two world wars in the 20th century and that it's very much still alive. You know, we've been blessed, not that we don't have all kinds of issues for trauma in the U.S., especially for indigenous people and people of color, you know, with the Holocaust of the of the Native Americans and with slavery and Jim Crow and all the rest of it. Um, but at least we haven't had the major wars land on our shore, other than the fact that Pearl Harbor, the beginning of World War II. But in Europe, you know, they've had these huge, massive armies just sweep across Europe one way and then the other way, and you know, primarily the Russians and the Germans. But going back further, I mean, Europe has been a battleground forever, right? Yeah, and and years. so there's a lot of collective trauma there, and this collective trauma plays itself out. It plays itself out. And personally, you know, I don't feel I have a deep, a profound belief that's part of my Buddhist tradition, but it's also become an experiential belief and faith for me in the innate goodness of all human beings, the innate goodness of life, the innate goodness of human society, uh, that at its core, there's this innate goodness and workability. And uh, and when we trust in that innate goodness, uh, you know, I mean, if you really look at what are the vast majority of human beings all around the world do every day, they get up. And they do their best to take care of themselves, take care of their kids, uh, work, uh, queue up at the well, queue up at the store, drive on the right side of the road. We're, we're naturally very collaborative and partnering and even loving and compassionate if we feel we can get our needs met in a reasonable way. Now, when we get afraid that we can't get our basic needs met, then we can start acting in all kinds of untoward ways. So really what we want to do is lower the fear as much. The more human beings on the earth uh, are less fearful about getting their basic needs met, we're gonna have a much more peaceful, much more workable society, right? And that points to the need for the collective work and the collective social justice work and the, and, and overcoming the, the gross income disparities that we have now, right? Because mm-hmm. we need more human beings to feel safe and feel like they can get their needs met in reasonable ways. So, but that collective trauma plays itself out. And, I, and so I don't believe that violence is inherent to human nature. I believe that violence and, and and all the, all the other things that go on, the toxicity, the violence, the abuse, the oppression, the, all of that, I believe it's more like a virus that just keeps getting passed around. And, and that we're carrying this unsustainable toxic load of internalized shame, oppression, and um, uh, in our human culture, and that it will always manifest as further violence until we kind of, you know, it, to use the Trumpian expression, drain the swamp a bit, which is not what he actually did. But we need no. we need to heal a lot of that trauma that's already there. And then we need to stop traumatizing people. Every time there's another refugee crisis, another war, another genocide, another child experiencing some kind of abuse in their home. I mean, this is adding to that pool of collective uh, shame and trauma, internalized oppression and shame and trauma. And, you know, it'll always keep manifesting as violence. And so... We really need to focus on learning how to heal trauma and how to and really focus on not creating more of it, because what you're really seeing there. I mean, you could pick this particular politician or that person on TV and just feel it. But really, they're just they're like the buds of the of the flowers coming out from the roots of of our collective trauma. 
So the question that I have is, you know, you take take Europe for example. Europe's Europe's a, a good example because there are there are many centuries of war and fighting and killing and trauma and drama and wounds and you know how obviously the answer is you make the choice to so i'll preface that jeopardy but how does somebody make that decision or how how does someone um take the steps to stop the trajectory or change the the perpetuation of trauma through the next generation now i don't have a lot of trauma from my childhood, but I have trauma from my childhood because of the way that my brain interpreted things that my parents did or said, or the, the, the shame, man, the, sh- the deep level of shame that I faced in school because I wasn't the kid that sat still. I like to ask questions. I like to challenge the authority. I don't think you know what you're talking about. I, I want to know how you got that answer because you're telling me that's like the gospel, but I don't believe you because... You're just standing up there, but you've never done this before. You're just reading in a book. I wanted to challenge that. And I was that bad kid. I was the bad apple. I was the kid that was never going to go anywhere. I, I was defiant and ADD. And my dad did, a, I think, a, a, a different job than my mom did. And my, my dad did a, a job that was, like, just a very, very accepting where I think my mom and her trauma worried about what people were going to think. I have mm-hmm. the choice to perpetuate that forward or stop it to my kids, and I chose to not let it roll forward by not reacting the same way that my parents did. Not that it was wrong, but I just don't think it served me as well as it could have. And there's nothing wrong that they did or bad that they did. They just did what they did. That's how do you stop, besides just making a choice, obviously, I've been working on personal development and spirituality and, and, and stoic stuff and Lao Tzu stuff for many, many, many years. But how does somebody who's just listening to this, who's at maybe like a level two out of ten, how do they not take the, that trauma from their childhood and perpetuate it to their children so that it just keeps rolling like this thousand years in Europe right. kind of thing, you know? Well, I think one aspect of personal responsibility that I invite all of us to embrace and it's been a huge part of my life and you've just been referencing is really just to do our own work. We all, we all need to heal. We have we have the whatever trauma we experienced in our own lives and as children growing up and nobody comes through childhood unscathed. We have generational trauma. It's in our DNA. Um, you know, we need to do our own healing work and uh, and then hopefully participate in in co-creating healing for others and our communities and so forth. So we need to do our healing work. There's a there's a training that I've been privileged to lead for about 24 years now. Um, that actually first, I first, uh, got in touch with it when I was in prison, the person who, who was leading that training got in touch with me through various reasons. Anyway, we got in a relationship. I managed to get the training into the prison. We did it in prison. I became a trainer and I've been leading it ever since. And, um, except for this past year, we haven't done it during the pandemic. And, um, but, and it's an old school kind of very intense group process that takes, takes us very quickly into our family of origin conditioning and helps us shift our relationship to it. So it's very kind of old school, very intense kind of training. And, um, but I, but it works and it's amazing. And, and I, every time I'm about to lead one of these trainings, it's called the event. Every time I'm about to lead one, I'm kind of, wow, am I really going to do this again? This is you know kind of crazy, really intense. But then every time it, when I get on the other side of leading one, I'm just so grateful for the work because in that training, which is a very intensive training over three, four, five days, 12, 14 hour days, <coughs> I actually see the link of the chain, the generational link break. I see people who are no longer going to pass on the trauma that they receive from their parents and grandparents, that that chain, the link is broken and they're not going to pass it on to their kids. They're not going to pass it on to their coworkers or their employees or whoever. And I literally get to see that that the link in the chain break. And to me, that is so powerful. And I have such gratitude to be able to participate in that. And and so we have to find ways to do that. And there's no substitute for each of us doing our own work, our own healing work. And and then we have to find ways to do that together. I'll just reference something. I I, I do a lot of prison work. and, And I have a close friend that does prison work out in San Quentin and other prisons in California. 
And he does this amazing program called Guiding Rage into Power, uh, or the acronym is GRIP. And they they bring, uh, the, it was started in a male prison. I, they may be doing it in female prisons now as well, but it started at San Quentin, actually. And, uh, you know, they bring men into a year-long com- community. They commit to being part of a year-long community doing this personal work. And um, anyway, in one of their sessions, uh, one of the men sort of raised his hand and, and reflected that in response to something, he said, hurt people, hurt people, mm-hmm. hurt people, hurt people. And then another prisoner raised his hand and he said, yes, and healed people, heal people. I, and I think that gets right right to the nub of it. Yeah, that's I've never heard it put that way. That's really interesting. I've heard the hurt people, hurt people. Never the healed people, heal people, which is that's very that's very true. Can you imagine if we had a government full of people that actually did the work on themselves and didn't use their job or money? And, you know, that's that's su- such a prevalent thing in our society where um, especially men that I have on this show came from a place of your story is different. But men who came from a place of working and grinding and hustling and crushing it and making all this money and this feeling so empty inside because they thought that that's what they had to do to prove themselves to the world and their family and society. But can you imagine if we had a government, even local government, where people did the work, really purposefully did the work on themselves and they weren't blaming and they stood up to a mic and said, listen, I, re- I messed that up and I'm really sorry that I let you down if that's how you feel or you feel I did. And I, I, this is what I'm going to do to not make that happen again. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I would... I would be shocked. I'd be shocked. Absolutely. Well, it's entirely possible. What we really, the work has to start is a groundswell of both individual and collective work, but we've got to make it safe for them to do that. Right now, anybody in the public sphere, they just don't feel safe doing that. And it's hard to convince them to feel safe doing that. Their whole brain is going, if I do that, they're going to annihilate me. And there is some truth to it, actually. So we have to create a world where where it's safe for people to be honest and vulnerable and take responsibility. And that, you know, there's a lot of work there, but you know, this is why are we here on the planet if not if not to do this work, you know? And you've been mentioning, I know your your show focuses on on um, men, you know, the work of uh, uh, another. Sure. You know, I've been involved in that training. I reference called the event, which is both men and women involved in that. But I've also all for a long time wanted to do the Mankind Project training, and and I had the opportunity to do that a couple of years ago, and very transformative. And I think the work that, that that movement is doing to try to help men uh, be men, you know, but but also learn to live in their heart and, and be able to be vulnerable and, and live a choice and take that kind of responsibility while still, you know, honoring the masculine and, and finding our yeah. way into the deep, healthy masculine. So I think there's some really good work going on in the world. Unfortunately, it's not dominant. It's not what we see. But there's fabulous work of all kinds going on all over the world. And, and sometimes we need to connect the dots to that to have greater faith in humanity and, and hope for the future. Because, you know, what we see in the, in the public sphere is everybody connecting the dots on all the negative stuff, right? And it seems like that's so right. dominant. But there's actually a lot of really good stuff going on in the world. Yeah, I, you know what, it's like a reverse iceberg, almost, where maybe there's a little bit more on top and the iceberg is is somehow staying upright, because there's a little less on the bottom, but the stuff on the bottom is this stuff. I mean, think about just the, how the podcast world, not, not, all, not all podcasts are out to help. I mean, there's some podcasts right. where people just want to talk. That's fine. Just to hear themselves talk. But think about this show. And I was, I was saying this yesterday on, a, on an episode where I was very proud of when we opened up the Middle East, right? In the Middle East and their history of what men are and who, and who men are and what they do and who women are and what they do. What if, what if, somebody hears this and creates a movement. I mean, what if you and I are a part of a movement that, cr- that, can, that can move an entire culture's mindset and way of being? That's so cool. That's so awesome. So I think there is, it's, it's more unseen because the news media, public media has way more power, control, money, distribution. This is coming up though. This is definitely coming up. Yeah, there's absolutely. There's no censorship here, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you one more question before we go, but go ahead. Well, I just, well, I just want to say that I think it's really important because I know I've been talking a lot about living a choice and, and sure. embracing personal responsibility and then also collective responsibility. But it's also really important, I feel, to kind of marry that with compassion. 
uh, with, with really cultivating deep compassion for ourselves, deep self-empathy and compassion. Uh, it's not about beating ourselves up into personal responsibility. The ground really needs to having, because it's no small thing being a human being. It's a huge challenge to be a human being. And, and we need to have profound compassion for ourselves and the struggle that we all go through. And we need to also have profound compassion for others. So I think it's somehow bringing together uh, the ability to cultivate greater and greater self-compassion and compassion for others. And then also this capacity to embrace living a choice. And then, and then from that place of personal responsibility to embrace greater commitment to, uh, to collective responsibility and to the collective and common good. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. And that's something that I've learned on my journey is compassion. And I didn't have compassion for others because I lacked it in myself. And mm -hmm. I didn't have compassion for myself because nobody else gave a shit about me either, in my mind, in my mind. And I had to prove myself by the money I made and the success that I had. And until I gave myself permission that I didn't have to do that anymore, I wasn't able to be compassionate for others until I until I actually gave myself a little bit of compassion. And that's what I talk about mm -hmm. in a lot of my episodes about being selfish is you have to be selfish. You have to take care of yourself first. You can't just keep giving to others and you're empty inside. That's it's the opposite way. But um, that's not a necessarily easy thing to do, kind of like what we were talking about in the beginning, which is the blame. Because, well, that mm -hmm. person didn't help me, so why would I help them? But my marriage, my business, this podcast, my clients, everybody's lives got, I think, um, more purposeful and better in the, in the stuff that I deliver and the stuff that I am and the stuff that I do because of my level of understanding of compassion, especially for myself and for others. And animals yeah, I, too, some, I, I've noticed that. Someone recently shared with me, uh, because sometimes we think of self-care as being selfish or, you know, but yeah. they said they, said they, like, they used the term self-stewardship. And I, and I really like that because there's an image I've always loved uh, called Indra's net, which comes from Indian cosmology, Vedic cosmology, that the idea of the universe is kind of this vast net, you know, like a fisher uh, fishing net. And uh, at every node on the net, like where the, you know, they're tied at the little knots at those nodes on the net, that there is a pearl or a jewel that reflects all the wisdom and information in the whole net, which is kind of the idea of the holographic universe, Bohm's holographic universe. And it's kind of now, beginning to be manifested in, in, in the World Wide Web, in a sense. Um, um, so at any rate, I, I tend to think of myself, my job is to be a good node on that net, right? To be a good node on that net and hopefully add at least as much value to, to the overall net as I'm receiving and ideally more. Ideally, I'm adding more value than I'm receiving. And to do that, I have to take care of myself. To be a good node on the net, I have to take care of myself, right? Reason, reasonably, right? So that, that idea of self-compassion and reasonable self-care and self-stewardship was a term somebody just shared with me the other day that I really like. Yeah, I really like that too. Well, listen, this has been a, um, this has been a real eye-opener, treat, and pleasure speaking with you. Dr. Fleet Mall. Say, say your last name for me, Mall. 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 Mm -hmm. Fleet Mall. This has been, yeah. uh, it's been an honor. It's, it's a fast, that was a fast hour. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, but great to meet for, you, Ian. Thank you here. for having me on, and thank you for doing the work that you're doing. Absolutely, yeah. That's it's uh, it's it's the pleasure's all on this side. And uh, tell people where they can find you, find your book, and uh, and we'll obviously we'll have that stuff in the show notes. But tell everybody where yeah. they can find Radical Responsibility. And, well, the book to doing. begin with uh, is just radicalresponsibilitybook.com, radicalresponsibilitybook.com, and you can read all about the book there and the accolades from the other best-selling authors, and you can download a free chapter right there. Uh, and then also you can order the book from there uh, through Barnes and Noble or Amazon or Indie Books, whoever you'd like to order it from if you choose to purchase. Uh, then my basic website is just fleetmall.com, fleetmall.com. And uh, uh, so you can find a lot about my work there. Uh, I, I do, uh, I offer a lot of the, the seminars and trainings that I do both in person and online through my organization called HeartMind Institute. And that's heartmindinstitute.co, not not .com, but just .co, heartmindinstitute.co. And then the prison work that I do um, uh, through an organization called Prison Dharma Network, which has four divisions, actually. But uh, I'll name three of them. Prison Mindfulness Institute brings mindfulness-based solutions for at-risk incarcerated returning youth and adults, and that's prisonmindfulness.org. 
And then the Engage Mindfulness Institute trains people in trauma-informed approaches to sharing the practice of mindfulness, especially with with uh, people in, in groups where that are under-resourced and marginalized and where there is a lot of trauma often. And so that's EngageMindfulnessInstitute.org. And then today we do a lot of work, and a lot of my personal work out in the world is working with correctional officers, probation and parole officers, and police and other first responders and public safety professionals uh, and bringing them uh, models to work in ways that are healthier for them and lead to enhanced performance and better outcomes. We call it mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency. And so that website is my, is the it's the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, but it's just mindfulpublicsafety.org, mindfulpublicsafety.org. I love it. Look, thank you for uh, for the work you're doing and for making that conscious choice to not be a victim based on the choices that you made that got you into prison. Like, think about that. That and I want. I'm, I'm talking to the audience. Think about that. You went to prison and you could have blamed. You could have stuff we talked about today. But you made the choice, which got you into a place that you didn't choose to be in. That's just that simple. And then the stories and the stuff that you make up around it make it complicated. But you are yeah. a, a, a man on purpose and a force for good in this world. And I, I really support what you're doing. And I, I think it's awesome. And um, and uh, we'd love to have you back on maybe in like six months. And just kind of give us an update of, of a little bit deeper into these different programs that you're running for people and, and the success stories that you're having of people just really transforming who they are. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to, Ian. I just wanted to throw one last wrinkle in. You know, I made that distinction between ownership and blame. And one of the important reasons to tease those apart and to be able to embrace choice without blaming ourselves is when we have caused harm, when we have done things that have caused suffering or pain to others, and I was involved in very harmful activity, obviously doing drug smuggling, we need to get in touch with the genuine remorse and regret and that really fuels our transformation. And regret is not about us. It's not guilt and shame, like I'm a horrible person. Regret is, wow, I really regret that I had that impact on someone. I would change it, transform it if I could. I'd love to repair it. So re regret and remorse are about the other person. And unfortunately, many people that get locked up in our criminal justice system, they're so focused on protecting themselves from all that shame and demonization that they can't get in touch. It's not safe for them to get in touch with their genuine regret and remorse. And I felt it was really when I really, really got in touch with the harm of what I've been doing after sitting in 12 step meetings in prison for a couple of years and listening to how many men's lives had just unraveled around drugs, all any justification I'd ever had for being involved in that fell away. And I had to face it. I'd been causing a lot of harm. And fortunately, I had the ability to embrace that with compassion and, and, and experience the regret. And that really became the fuel that wanted me to keep trying to become my best self and at least cause no more harm in the world and try to do good if I could. So anyway, it's right in there. The only reason I'm bringing it up because this whole thing around accountability and blame and shame and regret, remorse and ownership, it's really important to get in there because otherwise we just get lost and it's either blame them or blame me, you know? Right. Yeah. Love that. Well, um, we definitely have more to talk about. So we're going to, we'll get you back on Dr. Fleet Mall. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, thank you, audience, for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Thank you, Ian.